Well, he's now a pastor, professor, and best-selling author of books arguing the case for Christ and the Christian faith. But 36 years ago, Lee Strobel was an editor for the Chicago Tribune, an atheist, and died-in-the-wool skeptic. But then his wife, Leslie, became a Christian and determined to rescue her from what he believed to be a cult, he set out to disprove Christianity. Instead, the evidence led him to faith in Jesus. Welcome to Seeking Truth. I'm Julie Royce, and you can find me online at julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Well, joining me today is Lee Strobel, whose journey from atheism to faith has just been made into a new film opening in theaters in April. So, Lee, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join me. Thanks, Julie. It's always great to chat with you. Well, Lee, I watched this movie yesterday, and I'm so thrilled that I guess I'm the first journalist, you tell me, who's actually seen this film. Yeah, the first one who's talked to me who actually has seen the movie before uh, we got to chat about it. So, yeah, the uh, uh, Pure Flix that made the movie uh, wanted to make it available to you and kind of get your feedback as well as to uh, prepare to have a conversation about it. Well, I feel incredibly privileged, and I absolutely <laughs> love this film. But I'm guessing for you, it's got to be really wild seeing your life on a big screen played out in front of you. What is that like? It's, uh, yeah, it's very emotional for us, you know, because it shows the before Christian days, which, you know, I was a heavy drinker. I was uh, not the nicest person in the world. And so that that's portrayed on the screen. Uh, the, the disruption and turbulence in our marriage after Leslie became a Christian and I was an angry atheist is portrayed, and that's kind of hard to watch. Uh, the emotional moments of coming to faith and, and of investigating the evidence uh, it, in fact, it can be so emotional. My wife, Leslie, uh, has watched the movie six times. Hmm. And, and when I said, why are you watching this so much? She said, I want to get cried out before um, I see it in Aww. public. Aww. Uh, so, you know, there's some tears, there's some laughter. And um, it's uh, some of the scenes are so right out of our life that are, you know, just you can relive it. Um, of course, with any movie, to tell the story in real time would be a two-year film. So you have to time shift some things. You have to create some comp- composites and things like that. But uh, so it's based on a true story, and it represents our story extremely well. We're, we're very gratified with how Pure Flix uh, developed it. Hmm. Well, and I will say, when I watched it, just knowing you, and probably people listening don't realize that you and I go back, I was I was doing the timeline, I think it's 28 years ago we first met. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny, I, I know I sent you a, a note uh, a few weeks ago, just said how proud we are of you, and because we knew you way back when, and, and now you're just you're just doing so many great things for the kingdom, and and we're just so proud of of what you're you're accomplishing. And uh, but yeah, we go way back to the days of Willow Creek. I think you were a volunteer back then, right? I was a volunteer. I think we worked on those very first issues of the Willow Creek magazine together. Yes. Um, I think you wrote me a recommendation for an internship at the Chicago Tribune, which. I didn't get. I think there was oh, something. Bummer. Yeah, I know, I know. But who knows? I, I might be working at the Trib today if that were the case. Yeah. So the Lord had true. other plans. But I mean, speaking of <laughs> what's happened in our lives since we first met back in those Willow Creek days, I mean, you've sold like 14 million copies. Did I read that right? Of of books. I mean, you have. Yeah. You have uh, been on staff at several big churches. Now you're a professor at Houston Baptist as well as a preacher. I, I'm so proud of you. And and oh, when thanks. I. 
And I have to say, when I saw this film, just knowing you, because you're like a really left brain kind of guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> although, <laughs> I mean, you have a very warm, personable side to you, but but you are a left brain side uh, a guy. And so I'm right. expecting when I when I watch this film, I was just going to get tons and tons of apologetics or, you know, the mm. evidence. And, and that's in there. But what surprised me, and it's funny you say that Leslie choked up. I was not expecting to choke up. I'm watching mm. it, and I choked up numerous times because it is uh, so personal. And yeah. your relationship with your wife and also your father, the way that plays in. And so we're, we're going to yeah. get into some of that because that sure. was, to me, a surprise. I knew the part of, about your wife. I didn't know the piece about your father. Um, so let me just back up to the very beginning of this film because sure. uh, it starts out with you. You're at the Chicago Tribune. You've just gotten a promotion. And uh, you're kind of on top of the world. You've just written your first book, which I'm just curious. That was on the Ford Pinto. Is that right? Yeah, I did a lot of the original investigation on the Ford Pinto controversy where the Pinto would explode when hit behind in a slow or medium speed collision. And 64 people were burned to death in Pintos. Mm. And uh, Ford was charged with reckless homicide, which is a landmark case, and acquitted of that charge. But I wrote a book on it and... um, uh, called uh, Reckless Homicide, and that was my first book. Yeah, how many copies did that sell? About nine. About nine? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, <laughs> it was all uphill from there. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's, you, it was used in some law schools and um, uh, in classes on evidence and so forth. So it got a little, uh, probably 10,000 copies over the years. <laughs> oh, well, that's not bad. Actually, for a book, I think that makes it a bestseller, so. Yeah. <laughs> not in quite. my own mind, it's yeah. a bestseller. <laughs> uh, but you're at this point in your career where you're kind of on top of the world, right? I mean, you've just written yeah. this book. You've got uh, promoted the legal affairs editor. You have a beautiful wife, uh, a child, um, and everything seems great. And then Leslie makes a decision for Christ. She becomes a Christian. Right. Describe how that impacted you at the time. How did that turn your world upside down? Well, I remember, you know, the scene in the movie, which is probably my favorite scene, just because it just reflects virtually exactly what happened uh, when Leslie first tells me that she had prayed to receive Christ. And and um, we were in the kitchen, and um, really the first word that went through my mind was divorce. Um, I, I, I had no interest in being married to a Christian. I thought she was going to turn into some holy roller or something I couldn't relate to. Uh, spend all our time on skid row serving the poor or something. I mean, I, I didn't sign up for this. It wasn't part of my plan. And uh, I was confused. I was angry. And really, you know, soon thereafter, wanted to figure out a way to get her out of this cult. Because I felt over time like she was being pulled away from me uh, into uh, this evangelical subculture where I wasn't welcome because I wasn't one of them. And, uh, you know, I really I accused her at one point of cheating on me with Jesus. In other words, you know, um, yeah, I was her husband, but this guy who all of a sudden she's looking up to and worshiping and uh, Jesus, well, who's this guy? And, and how did he get into our marriage somehow? This doesn't make sense. Um, so it, it, it was really a confusing, a, a, uh, uh, emotional time for me. There's a scene, uh, which, uh, where I turn over a, uh, a planter um, in anger over this whole thing. In real life, I, I literally reared back and kicked a hole right through our living room wall. Oh, um, that should have so been in there. Was, That's very dramatic. 
You know, I think so too. I didn't know why they changed it to overturning the flowers, but maybe they thought it was too much, but it's actually what happened. And so there was a lot of tension in our marriage. In fact, we wrote a book about this uh, called Spiritual Mismatch, which is what do you do if your spouse is not a believer and how do you handle these uh, different values that all of a sudden come into a relationship and so forth. So, um, I mean, that, that book I think has, has helped a lot of people find themselves in that kind of position. But um, so, you know, it, it started us on a road that lasted a couple of years that was quite difficult in our marriage. Mm. And even the, the dynamic that you describe, you know, kick, kicking your foot through a wall, but also it shows you drinking. It shows yeah. scolding your kid. You didn't mean to do that, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. things like this. And, and I'm sitting there watching that, knowing your children now. I mean, mm-hmm. Kyle is a professor, right? At, at right, a, at Biola. Uh, at, yeah, in a Christian institution. Your daughter is writing Christian novels. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, do you sit there and watch, when you watch something like that, and think, there but for the grace of God? I mean, w- what would my family yeah. have turned out like? Oh, yeah, God rescued our family. I mean, it, it was so bad that uh, when Allison, my daughter, was a toddler, um, you know, because I'd been such a, a distant and a uh, distracted um, dad. I was tied so much to my job. I was absent. I was angry. Uh, I had a lot of rage inside of me because I could never, you know, I was searching for um, something to fulfill me and never could find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was heavily drinking. And, and uh, you know, what people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting at the Chicago Tribune. What they didn't see was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and my daughter, you know, uh, when she was a toddler, if she was alone in the living room playing with some blocks or toys or something, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Mm. You know, is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be yelling and screaming and, you know, kicking holes in the wall? Mm. Lisa's nice and quiet in here. Mm. So, you know, our family was suffering as a result of, uh, uh, you know, my um, attitudes and behavior. Uh, and, you know, God rescued us. I mean, when I came to faith, um, you know, my values and character and morality and worldview and philosophy and priorities and relationships and marriage and all that began to change uh, so much so that that um Four or five months after I came to faith, Allison, who, you know, till age five had only known a dad who was absent and angry and kicking holes in walls. Um, but she had watched for those four and five months how God was changing me, uh, you know, and, and just watching and observing and listening. And finally, she went up to her Sunday school teacher and said, um, uh, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Oh. Oh. And so at age five, she came to faith. And then um, then Kyle, our son, who's a little younger, saw the difference in everybody in the family. He came to faith at a young age. And, you know, he took an academic route, got his Ph.D. in theology from University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and is now a professor of spiritual formation at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. So, I mean, God and Allison has taught in Christian schools, her and her husband, Who's a guy? By, by the way, her husband has a degree, um, a master's degree in apologetics. And, uh, <laughs> so they've actually written some children's books mm. on apologetics. And so, yeah, God's changed our family, rescued us. I don't know what would have happened had God not done that. 
I, I, I shudder to think. I mean, Leslie and I just celebrated the 50th anniversary of us meeting, hmm. and uh, you know, we've been married for over 44 years. So, um, you know, to have that, the joy of uh, great marriage and great kids, and now grandkids. In fact, you'll get a <laughs> kick out of this, Julie. My granddaughter Abigail. Uh, just turned 11, but when she was 10 last summer, she went on her first missions trip, oh. which we thought was a little young, yeah. and, but they took a bunch of kids from the church, mm-hmm. and they went to a small poverty-stricken community um, in Texas here and uh, lived in the basement of a church on blow-up air mattresses, and they would want go out and do little uh, projects and share their faith. And I actually have a photograph of my granddaughter at age 10 leading another girl to faith in Christ, little oh, kindergartner. Oh, so, that is I mean, so, so precious. So, oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> so the, you know, the legacy of the family mm. is completely changed. And, um, you know, it's God's grace, if, if not his great sense of humor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I have a great grandpa who was a drunk and um, mm. kicked my grandpa's sister out of the house when she became a believer. And oh. But she then led my, my grandpa to the Lord. And I look at that, oh, you know, great. that legacy of faith, it's passed down and, and, and really stopped passing of that broken baton down in yes. our family and, and set a whole new trajectory. And I'm so grateful and so grateful for what God's done. And I love that you don't gloss over the mess, though. I mean, this movie yeah. shows the mess. And I mentioned about your relationship with your father, a very strained yeah. relationship. Um, right. Shows even when, you're, when your second child, when Kyle was born, you didn't, you didn't even want to call your dad, didn't want to, even want to tell, tell him. Yeah. Um, fascinating scene for me is when you go to talk to uh, a psychiatrist who's you mm-hmm. know leading authority because you want to ask her wasn't it that you know when Jesus appeared to the 500 after being resurrected could that have been like a mass hallucination or something right um, she kind of dispels that but then she asks you a very pointed question about your father tell me yeah. about that and why that was so significant well, you know, what, what, what's very interesting and a lot of people don't understand is that atheism isn't always merely an intellectual objection to the faith. There's often psychological or emotional underpinnings. And what studies have shown, in fact, Paul Vitz from New York University did a whole book on this called Faith of the Fatherless, mm-hmm. in which he goes back through history and all the famous atheists through history, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, uh, Freud, uh, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare. I mean, you just go back to all of them. And they either all had a father who died when they were young, abandoned their family when they were young, or with whom they had a difficult, terrible relationship. And the implication, and Freud talked about this, the implication is, if your earthly father has disappointed or hurt you, why in the world would you want to believe in a heavenly father? Because that's only going to make it worse. He's only going to hurt you worse. So this father dynamic can be very important in um, um, uh, these faith issues and in putting people on a trajectory towards skepticism and atheism. A lot of people don't even realize that that dynamics in their life. The scene that didn't make it into the movie, um, and it was just because of time, and we compensated for it in other ways, but the most dramatic moment in my relationship with my dad happened on the eve of my high school graduation when he caught me lying to him about something. And um, we had a big argument, and uh, he looked at me and he said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. Oh. Um, mm. And, and I, I didn't know what to say. I, I stormed out of the house. 
um, never expecting to go back. I, I rented an apartment up in Woodstock, Illinois, and worked on the newspaper there and, and thought I'd never see him again, never go home. My mom kind of brokered a, an icy tension, and uh, so I did come back briefly and then um, went off to college, but we never really reconciled from that. And it just was kind of a distant and a cold and a difficult relationship. And that's portrayed in the movie in other ways. Uh, and I think it's a factor for a lot of people. Um, in fact, there was a book done by Oxford Press uh, last year, I believe, uh, in which it, uh, they did a, a huge study. It went over many generations, um, dozens of years in this, this study. And they did this report on how faith is passed along in families. And the most interesting thing they found is in all religions, except for Judaism, uh, it's the father who's the major figure. Uh, in Judaism, it's the mother, interestingly. But hmm. in, in Christianity, it's the father. And here's the deal. This, this is for anybody listening who's a father. I think this is sobering. You can be a pillar of the church. You can pray um, every day. You can read your Bible. You can have... You know, talk about God around the house. You can do that kind of thing. Um, but if you are a distant father, unemotionally attached to your children, the chances are they will not follow you into the faith. Mm. That's the factor, the distance, the, the coldness, the detachment. If, if that's the kind of emotional relationship you have with your children, it's a high likelihood they're not going to follow you in the faith. And that's what happened to me. Um, you know, my dad was a Lutheran and, and went to church, and, um, and my mom was a believer, but they kind of let me decide what I wanted to do on my own, which is always a bad, <laughs> bad idea to do. And, um, you know, I ended up walking the path of atheism for a lot of reasons, and I did have a lot of intellectual objections, and that mm -hmm. was a big factor. But you can't ignore these emotional things. In fact, you know, when, when I get into a conversation with a non-believer, I'll often ask them the question, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you say? Hmm. And then they, they'll give me an answer, and maybe the answer is, um, well, why does a loving God allow pain and suffering? But I don't answer the question. What I do is answer, ask a follow-up question. The follow-up question is, wow, of all the possible questions in the universe, why did you ask that one? Then it gets the emotion. Then they'll say, well, you know, because where was God when, you know, my son died in childbirth, uh, at childbirth uh, five years ago, or some tragedy has happened or whatever. Now you're getting to the emotional side. Now you're getting to what the real underpinnings are driving that question. Mm -hmm. So I always try to try to probe beyond just the intellect because... I think a lot of times there are other issues that are percolating. Hmm. I'm curious, when that psychiatrist, when she said that to you, did you just brush it off or was it, was it something maybe you brushed off initially, but it kind of nagged at you? I mean, did you begin to put together some of that? Well, um, I didn't begin to put together the father thing for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it kind of sensed it was a factor. Mm -hmm. It was certainly a factor in my life. Yeah. Uh, as a scene, and I don't know how much we're going to give away about the movie, but at the end, I, I, <laughs> we'll I do learn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I came to faith, but um, <laughs> at the end, I do find out um, that after my dad's death, that he really had loved me and, and he mm -hmm. really uh, did treasure um, what uh, I was doing in my life and so forth. And, um, you know, I had been wrong about him and, and 
you know, I, I remember in the scenes, not in the movie, but standing in front of my dad's coffin uh, at the wake all by myself and saying uh, two things. First of all, I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sorry for my role. I was a rebellious, difficult kid, and uh, I was sorry for my role in our relationship. And then I said, I forgive you and um, forgave him for, you know, his role in our um and the problems that we had, a rift, uh, stuff I wish that I had said when he was alive. And anybody listening who's alienated from a dad or a mom or whoever, I hope that my, the movie might prompt them to do something like that before it's too late. But, um, yeah, I, I, I never quite put it all together, actually until I read Paul Vitz's book years mm-hmm. later. And, I, and then all, all the pieces kind of came together. Mm-hmm. You know, I sat down with a famous atheist once. It was so funny. And uh, I said, uh, tell me about your life. And he said, well, my dad died when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it was the first thing out of his mouth. And I thought, wow. huh, isn't that interesting? That not only had that happened to him, but that was the first thing that he mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, not realizing, I don't think, this connection that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, I love that that scene is in the movie because having done ministry, I, I can attest to the same thing that often mm. that relationship with dad is so critical because he's he is your symbol of of God the Father. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that's huge. So I I love yeah. that scene. That really hit me. Um yeah. Let's talk about the evidence for Christianity because that's sure. that's in there too. You're able to weave it in with all these personal aspects. Um right. but you're not an unbiased reporter, which is kind of funny because right. we, we supposedly, as you know, journalists always value being uh, fair and unbiased. But you're you're hostile towards Christianity. I mean, right, you're on a right. mission to disprove this thing. Yet, despite being on a mission to disprove, and normally, you know, as reporters, as we have seen in the mainstream media and others, um, when they're on a mission to do something, they usually accomplish it and they write the story they want to. Yeah. But you aren't able to do that because the evidence wasn't there. I mean, talk about what are some key things that really you you just you couldn't get over. It's like I wasn't expecting to find this, but what do I do with right. it now? Well, you know, when I embarked on this investigation, I did make a vow to myself, and that was um you're right, Julie, we're trained as journalists to you know, we all have biases, but mm-hmm. to try to be fair and balanced in what we do. And I tried to do that as a journalist, even though I had a definite point of view. Um, so even though I was out to disprove it, I said, you know what, I'm going to try to approach this like an umpire at a baseball game and call a ball, a ball and a strike, a strike. Hmm. And when somebody, you know, when the pitcher throws a strike, I'm going to acknowledge it. Um, when they don't, I'm going to call them out. So I, I was open to that degree. And, um, uh, when I did the investigation, I remember when I, when I was a kid, uh, for Christmas, I got one of these punching bags. They're like a clown, uh, and it's heavily kind of weighed in the bottom, yep. the kind of an inflatable exactly thing. exactly what you, you're talking about. Yeah. Remember those yep. things? Yeah, I do. And, and you hit it, and it falls back, and then it pops back up. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with Christianity. I thought I could punch it once, and it would go away. It would die. But I would hit it. And it would bounce back. There'd be something else I didn't expect. There'd be a new fact, a new line of evidence, a new line of reasoning. Um, and, and it stunned me because I actually thought this whole investigation was going to take a weekend. <laughs> I figured two or three days. Well, it took two years, a year and nine months, actually, right. uh, for me to do because it kept bouncing back. 
And, um, you know, the more I looked into things, and of course it was the resurrection we focused on the film. I did look at a lot of other things, but Mm -hmm. to me, the resurrection was, was it. I mean, that was the ball game because, uh, anybody can claim to be the son of God, but if Jesus claimed it, as I believe he did, then, um, you know, did he back that up by returning from the dead? That becomes the issue. And, uh, you know, I think the evidence for the early accounts of the, first of all, the evidence for the, for the death of Jesus is overwhelming. Even Gerd Ludeman, the atheist New Testament scholar, says mm-hmm. the death of Jesus by crucifixion is historically indisputable. We have five ancient sources outside the New Testament, plus the first century accounts in the New Testament about his death. So that's beyond dispute. Um, uh, but then the early reports of the resurrection, you know, this, this creed, this report of the resurrection that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, has been dated back by scholars to within months of Jesus' death. So here we have a report that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again. Here's the names of groups and individuals to whom he appeared that's been dated back by scholars to within months of the, of the event. Now, that, that's historical gold. You know, when you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch, written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. But here we have something that goes right back within months. That's, that's incredible. And we have other reports. In fact, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament uh, affirming and, and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Uh, plus the empty tomb. Even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded that the tomb was empty. So we've got a, we've got a proliferation, I think, of um, lines of evidence that point powerfully and persuasively toward the fact that Jesus not only claimed to be divine, but then backed up that claim by returning from the dead. Well, I love that that's in that movie as well, that you, you put those pieces in there. There's not a hard and fast argument like you do in your books, but I think there's enough yeah. there that people will say, hmm, I want to investigate that further, and hopefully you know, we'll do that. that. That's a good point, Julie. Um, you can put only so much in a film, and I really, in my heart of hearts as an evangelist, uh, my heart of hearts says the most important moment of an evening of going to the theater and seeing this movie, the big moment's going to happen after the movie's done. Mm. You know, if you bring a non-believing friend mm-hmm. and you go out for coffee afterwards and you talk about it, that to me is is the most important moment of all. And I'm hoping people give that friend a copy then of the Case for Christ book. You know, we have a new updated and expanded edition that just came out, a movie edition mm. that has new archaeological evidence, new manuscript evidence, a new chapter in it, some inside stuff about the movie, but... Um, uh, it's called the Case for Christ movie edition. And I hope people give that as a gift, mm. as a next step. We also have a small group curriculum that's available, so you can go through a four-week small group experience with scenes from the movie and so forth. I'm posting free videos at our website, thecaseforchristmovie.com, where I talk about how to invite someone to, a mo- to the movie mm. and then how to have a conversation afterwards. Um, so we're really trying to equip people to use this uh, as a tool uh, that I believe Christians are going to they're going to enjoy the story. It's a love story. It's a father-son story. It's a big city journalism story. It's a spiritual investigation story. I think Christians will like it. But I hope as, as, as a Christian walks out of the film, they'll say, 
oh, man, my neighbor needs to see that. My colleague at work needs to see it. My fellow student at the university needs to see it. My you know, sister needs to see it, whoever. And they'll bring them back, watch it together, have a conversation, give them the book as the next step, and see what God does. I, I, I just pray that, you know, as you know, the gospel is in the film. Yep. Um, we talk about John one twelve: believe plus receive equals become. Mm-hmm. We even have T-shirts with that on them. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the faith formula. Yeah. And um, we're hoping that a lot of people are going to come in this movie, even people who think they're Christians and who say, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. I agree with that. But their life hasn't changed. Their values haven't changed. They've never really been born again. That they'll see the movie and they'll see what happens when I realize it's more than just believe. I have to receive Jesus as my forgiver and leader. And then I become a child of God, receive this free gift of his grace. And I'm hoping a lot of people will take that step spontaneously, but then others will start an investigation and say, I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to check it out myself. I'm going to get some answers. Great. I don't have any fear for anyone who, with an open heart and an open mind, uh, investigates the evidence. We were talking just a little bit before the podcast, and you said that uh, one of the scenes that you were kind of debating about keeping in the movie was that scene of your conversion where you actually pray to receive Christ, and your wife sort of walks you through how to do that. And interestingly, you said you've shown this to some atheists, yes, and they love that scene. Yeah, you know, you know, there have been times in Christian films in the past where they they were a little cheesy, they were a little trite. I understand that. And our fear was, how do you show an emotional moment like that without being trite or cheesy? Well, Mike Vogel does such an amazing job of portraying this with such authenticity and such rawness and that it is a powerful scene. And so we tested it with uh, two versions of the movie. One version stops short of me praying. It's just implied. Hmm. And then the other version shows the prayer. And we showed it to non-believers, to skeptics. And they watch it, and they all said, no, no, keep that prayer in there. That needs to be in there. Don't you think for a lot of people, especially unbelievers, they don't know what, what that transaction's like. They don't know yeah. how you do it. They don't. And what I love about it is you do it just as bumbling as you would if, yeah. you know, I mean, it was just very real. It's like, I don't know yeah. how to say this prayer. I mean, what do I do, you know? And, yeah, I think at one point I say something like, uh, whatever's next. That's what I want. (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Nobody ever trained me in this. (laughs) And that's perfect. That's so perfect. And I watched a training once for an evangelism type, pre-evangelistic type Bible study. And they say, when you Uh pray, don't pray a flowery prayer. Just kind of pray like, dear God, thanks for the weather. Amen. And then the the person who doesn't know Christ will say, well, I can do better than that. Yeah, right. That's funny. You know, just seeing somebody in a very real way trying to connect with a God who's been completely foreign yeah. to them. I, I thought well, that was really powerful. I did, too. In fact, we, we were less than I were on the set when they filmed that, and we were outside a house in Covington, Georgia, where they filmed it, and um, we're listening on earphones and watching on a video monitor as this is being filmed inside. And literally, I held my breath because this is the moment. And I watched Mike Vogel uh, pray just so authentically and so mm. honestly and so powerfully. And so then after the scene, the characters came out of the house and I went up to Mike and, um, 
I just wanted to thank I, I wanted to say thank you, Mike, and I, I just burst into tears. Aww. And I, I threw my arms around him, and I whispered in his ear. I just said, thank you, Mike, for being honest in that scene. Thank you mm-hmm. for being raw in that scene. Thanks for being real in that scene. And Mike's a strong believer. He's a Christian, and, and not everybody in the film is. Um, we didn't make that a prerequisite for the actors. So we had a variety of, of perspectives among the uh, actors and actresses. Uh, he was, he's a strong believer. Uh, but we would start every day on the set with prayer, and it was voluntary. But, you know, mm-hmm. even the non-believers stayed for it. And uh, I remember the, the one of the uh, hairstylists pulled me aside at one point, and she said, you may not know it, but behind the scenes, there are all kinds of spiritual conversations going on. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and I gave everybody a signed copy of the uh, re- uh, updated um, and revised edition of The Case for Christ. And so we try to use it even evangelistically among some of the cast and crew who may not be believers. Since you brought up the hair thing, I've been meaning to ask you this. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have hair that long? Yeah, I did, but I never had the mustache. I could never grow the mustache, but oh. they thought it would look more 1980s if he had a mustache. So he has a mustache in the movie. But yeah, my hair was that long. In fact, I found the other day, in fact, I've got it right here. Um, my Yeah, here it is, my actual press card from the Chicago Police Department back when I was at the Chicago Tribune. And, yeah, my hair is as long as Mike's is in the film. <laughs> but there, there's one part where he actually puts hairspray on, and I'm like, I, yeah. no, I, I don't see Lee ever putting on hairspray. I just I can't no, envision that. <laughs> I didn't use hairspray, but they had to use that. They, they did that scene to set up a, a later scene where I'm brushing my teeth, and I look on the mirror, and Leslie had, post, had a Post-it note yeah. that said, God loves you, and so do I. That was one of Leslie's failed evangelistic things that she tried with me, <laughs> which is true. Uh, she she tried a lot of things that didn't work, but you know she had a mentor behind the scenes. Yeah, there were actually a couple, and and one was an African American woman who worked with her, and one was a neighbor, and so there's kind of a composite character named Alfie in the movie, and um, that's really what got Leslie through this is having a, a strong Christian mentor who could be a shoulder to cry on, and it wouldn't let her go into a pity party or make it them versus Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, really kept her growing spiritually. That was really a key to Leslie's continued spiritual health during this whole process. Hmm. Another component of your story that I wasn't aware of was the story that you had done. Now, it, it shows you kind of so obsessed with your spiritual investigation that some of your work at the Tribune was suffering, um, mm-hmm. and you published a story that you didn't know was erroneous, but it ends up being erroneous, and a guy goes to prison because of it. Um, yeah, that's it, a true story. It, uh-huh. it, it it didn't exactly play out that way in real life, as okay. close to it. But there was a guy uh, in Chicago who was a gang member who was uh, shot, uh, who was accused of shooting a Chicago police officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I covered the case. And um, be honest, I looked at this kid with his record. He'd gone to prison before for a shooting. I thought, you know, this is a you know this kid from the projects. Um, of course, he's guilty. And, um, and, you know, they had all the evidence pointed that way. I mean, right. they found his gun at the scene. It had a bullet missing. It was the same caliber, um, you know, had his fingerprints on it. Um, you know, I mean, he was wrestling with this cop when, when the cop was shot. The cop's gun was never fired. So, I mean, hey, the evidence all pointed in that direction. And, you know, I wasn't interested in looking at other options. Um, and he was he he pleaded guilty. That was the other thing because mm-hmm. they offered him a good deal, a year in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there was another side to it. And um, in real life, I'd gotten a tip on this that 
the police officer had been seen at a party before that with a pen gun. It looks like a fountain pen. It's actually yeah. a twenty-two caliber gun. And that gun had been in his pocket, and it had gone off spontaneously during the struggle with this defendant. And so he shot himself, and, but it was illegal to carry that pen gun. So to, to cover it up, he blamed the, the kid for shooting him. The kid was really innocent, and um, I ended up uncovering the true story and publishing it. Um, and uh, the cop was later uh, convicted of official misconduct. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, the young man did spend um, – uh, a year in Cook County Jail awaiting trial, and um, you know he was he was innocent the whole time. Mm. But I think part of it is you know the evidence. You think it points in a direction, and as a skeptic, I kind of thought the evidence pointed away from God. Uh, not that I'd ever really examined it, but it just seemed to make sense to me that God didn't exist. And um, um, and yet when you open when you examine it with new eyes, all of a sudden the evidence takes you in a different direction. So that whole case is kind of a metaphor for um, opening your eyes to another possibility and seeing that, wait a minute, if you're open to the evidence, it may take you in a completely different direction than you anticipated. Yeah, I think that's powerful. And when he says you didn't see the truth because you you didn't want to see the truth. Yes, you didn't see it because you didn't want to see it. Exactly. And so many times that's true of people. It sure is. I'm wondering how much, because I'm watching that, I'm seeing you made a mistake there, but also you made a mistake with your children. We were talking about how you treated your wife. and, And I'm thinking as an atheist, where do you go? with that guilt? Where, well, how do you mm. process that when you fall so short of your own standards? How much of well, that plagued you? You know, I was a hedonist. Mm. My attitude was, again, I'm a rational person, as you said, mm-hmm. so I looked at it logically. If there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way, I thought, to live life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that was what my life was about. Um, the problem with that is that nothing lives up to the hype. You know, you're always after that ultimate high, that ultimate experience of pleasure, but everything falls short. Nothing fulfills everything. You know, nothing lives up to the claims. And, and um, so you, you end up with a lot of rage. And, and that's, I think, the source of a lot of the rage that I had. Uh, was that, um, you know, I, I couldn't get that perfect high. And I sort of uh, got to the point where almost with a seared conscience, in other words, I, you know, I was, it was all about me. I was a narcissist, I was self-obsessed. Um, and, um, um, I, you know, my biggest disappointment was not finding that avenue of pleasure that would um, um, satisfy my life. And of course, it wasn't until I found Christ that I realized that I was just, I was, I was running headlong down a blind alley before, mm-hmm. and um, you know, grateful that uh, I, I made it. I made a U-turn. Yeah. Well, not only are I'm sure you grateful, but uh, I think the church is grateful because God has used your life in such incredible ways and reached so many people. And you know, all that training that you thought you were just going to apply to investigative journalism, you applied now to lead a lot mm. of people to Christ. And so I, I'm excited about this movie and just the, your testimony, which is, is so mm. incredibly powerful. So this comes out April 7th, is that right? That's right. It's in movie theaters nationwide April 7th. There is a special event uh, in a limited number of theaters on the night of April 6th for people who want to see it early. Um, and as part of that, you go to your theater, you not only see the movie, but 
after that, then Les and I do a live Q&A that's broadcast into the theaters. Uh, and I think we're going to have some cast members there and so forth. So um, that's kind of a fun deal, and, and you can get tickets to that. It, our website's thecaseforchristmovie.com, and all the information's there. But, but Nationwide opens on April the 7th, and uh, like most films, you know, that first weekend is all important. If, if uh, uh, you know, they don't let films linger around if they're not attracting an audience. So we're, we're hoping that people, if they're going to go, will seize that first weekend as an opportunity. And it's right before Easter. It's, it's Palm Sunday weekend. So we're hoping that people will go. They'll bring a non-believing friend or someone who's kind of spiritually curious and then invite them to the Easter services at your church. Um, so a lot of churches are using this as part of their Easter promotion and are um, renting out theaters and things like that to use it. Uh, I had one pastor say that, um, and I think he was being hyperbolic here, a little over the top, but he said, um, this is the outreach film of our lifetime. Um, and, and that's probably over the top, but I really do think it can be a powerful outreach right during the Easter season for churches to leverage uh, for the gospel. Oh, well, I think it's a fantastic movie, and I think it will lead a lot of people to the Lord. So well done, Lee, and thank you so Thanks. much for um, taking the time today. Really appreciate it, um, and God bless you. Thank you. So great talking with you. It's, it's so funny how many all the years that have gone by, and <laughs> yes. to see what God's done in your life. And here you are, and we were talking about this. You know, we're still involved with the church. We're still involved with evangelism. Mm. Still leading people to faith. Still excited about it. it. It just tickles me. It's just the greatest adventure, isn't it? <laughs> it is absolutely. <laughs> non Christians don't know how much fun they're missing out on. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, thanks again, Lee. God bless. My pleasure. God bless. Well, you've been listening to Seeking Truth, a podcast exploring issues related to faith and culture. I'm Julie Royce, and if you want more information about The Case for Christ movie, just go to thecaseforchristmovie.com. I'll also post a link at my website, julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. And while you're there, please sign up for updates so we can stay in touch. And when you do, you'll receive a free download of a guide I produced on five ways that you can use social media to stop Planned Parenthood. So again, just go to julieroyce.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Hope you have a great week and continue seeking truth.